Peter 4. Go ahead and turn there in your Bible. You have a handout there that you can use. Or you can use your own notebook, whatever. So we've only got a few sermons left in this series. We're finishing up 1 Peter. But last week we looked at how Jesus' suffering, Jesus' victory, that story should be our story and how we live our lives. So we looked at how the story of Jesus is not simply a story that we know, but it's a story that we live. The story of Jesus' death and resurrection, this whole imagery is applied to our own life, where we die to sin and then we are raised to life in Jesus. So the victory that Jesus has won for us that we can enjoy is not simply a story that we know about, we talk about like it's a fairy tale. It's a story that has enlivened our very souls and has enlivened who we are as human beings to live out in that same way. So we do not merely know the story, but we also live the story. I can't tell you how important this is for you to understand if you're a Jesus follower. When you say that you follow Jesus, you're not simply following this idea of what Jesus has done. You're not following the set of beliefs that you have about Jesus. You are following the person of Jesus and actually living in the same way that he did. Not by your own strength, but by the power and strength that he exercised in the death and resurrection of his own life. So this is so important for us. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to live out his story. It means to be the living example of Jesus wherever we are. So last week we talked about how we can live out the story of Jesus as we we glorify or as we get to glory through our suffering. That we know that suffering is just a pathway to glory and so we can stand firm in that. And we can continue in that even though we may experience alienation or abuse from the world. We know that God has the victory. So last week, we kind of saw how we can anticipate Christ's victory among unbelievers. And today, in this passage, we're going to look about how we can live out the story of Jesus here in this room, here in this community of people. So verse 7, chapter 4, okay? The end of all things is at hand. Boom! Wake up! The end of all things at hand. That may sound gloomy and pessimistic. Maybe like a, the beginning of like a new movie about the apocalypse. But for Peter, this is good news. The end of all things is at hand. That's good news for Peter. We'll talk about that after. But because the end of all things is at hand, Peter says, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that all of this may be for God's glory, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
Let me pray for us, and we'll, we'll dive in here, okay? Father, we are grateful to be here. And Lord, even more than that, we're challenged as your people, as your children, to live in a way that reflects the story of Jesus. And we are humbled and filled with thanksgiving that you're willing to do that in us. So I pray that these next few minutes would just be equipping each and every person in this room to live like Jesus, to become more and more like Jesus, and to do that ultimately above all else through love. So God, may your spirit be at work here in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we said, this whole passage is framed from the beginning of of verse 7, verse 7. Um, He says, the end of all things is at hand. And like I said, that may sound like pessimistic or bad news, but for Peter, this is good news. Why? It's good news because for the Christian, the end of all things means the culmination or the bringing together, the fulfillment of God's plan. And God's plan is to bring everything and make it new. God's plan is to make everything new, to renovate everything, to restore everything everything under the lordship of Jesus. So this is the context, remember? Peter is unpacking the victory that Jesus has. He says Jesus has victory, and that's the end of all things that Peter mentions here. Jesus is victory. So when all things will be subjected to Jesus, all things will bow down to Jesus, Jesus is going to hand that over to the Father, and then God will be all in all, Scripture says. God will be making all things new under King Jesus. So, how should we live in community with one another in anticipation of God's glory, or God's victory? That's the question we're going to be asking. How do we live with one another well in anticipation of living for God's victory in Jesus? First thing is be alert and sober-minded. Be alert and sober-minded. So the first command Peter gives here is to be self-controlled and sober-minded, which are basically synonyms, although we usually mean two different things by that. Um, Peter is just using synonyms here to say, be clear-minded, be be (laughs) clear-headed, which obviously I'm not right now because it's daylight savings, but be clear-headed. Have a one-tracked mindset. Peter wants the Christian to be clear-minded in anticipation of Christ's victory. Would you call yourself clear-minded? Would you have a focused mindset? And why does he want them to be alert and sober-minded? It's so that they can pray. He says, do this for the sake of your prayers. Listen, guys, we live in a hurried, busy, hyper-productive, urban digital world. That is the context we live in. It's fast-paced. It's hurried, and it's often difficult, I'll tell you, to clear your mind. It's often difficult to just rid distractions out of your mind. It is hard in the type of culture that we live in. Our phones are themselves. They've become extensions of our being, right? The extensions of who we are. They never leave our side, and Because of this, we're constantly, just constantly flooded with distraction. As I was trying to finish up this sermon, this afternoon, I had my phone there watching the Liberty game. And did they win? 
Okay, great, great. Um, I had it there, and I was, I was just slow. I was slow because I was trying to multitask, which they've proven you can't do. Your brain doesn't do that. It just switches back and forth. You can't focus on two things at once. No matter what, my wife will tell me, like, she's able to hear two conversations at once. I think that's magic or something. That has nothing to do with, like, some of you ladies, at least, you can, you can have this ability to hear two different conversations at once, which is just wild to me. That's insane. Okay, so some three. It's <laughs> okay. That's impressive, Caroline. Um, but multitasking is a myth. We can't do it. But it's, it's so prevalent in our world today because we're so hyper-productive. And so in our natural tendency to escape boredom, who here likes being bored? Okay, maybe one of us. <laughs> but we all have this desire. If we're really honest with ourselves, we don't like to just sit in a quiet room by ourselves. Um, I've shared this story before, but one of the punishments when I was at South Lake Christian Academy for my high school career, was to, um, the, the punishment was to go to Saturday school. And what you did is you dressed up in your uniform that morning, you showed up really early, and you sat in a room, you didn't say anything, you didn't read anything, you didn't listen to anything, you just sat there. And it was awful. Because of just the boredom, you just left there to, to think. You and your thoughts, that's what Saturday school was. I mostly went there because I was so tardy, so many times, um, but that's a whole other story. But all of us, I think at the end of the day, we hate being bored because it leaves us to just think about our place in the world and who we are. And one of the easiest ways we fight boredom is distraction. We can distract ourselves. Well, instead of just sitting here doing nothing, I'm going to pull up, you know, Golf Clash or what is that flippy game with the, the what's the jet ski game? Does anyone know the jet ski game? What is it? Flippy Boat. That's the latest one. I downloaded it for like 30 seconds, deleted that, and said this is not going to be good for my soul. But like instead of sitting there doing nothing and thinking, what are we going to do? We're going to go to YouTube. We're going to just distract ourselves. Instead of sitting there quietly and having introspection, silence, solitude, or in this case, prayer. One of the greatest hindrances to our prayer life is distraction. And we are increasingly distracted by our phones. So scripture gives a lot of reasons why uh, distraction is dangerous to your life. I'm going to give you some dangers of distraction that scripture has given us. Number one, it can lead to unfruitfulness. And what we mean by that is you can hear the word of God a lot. You can study the word of God a lot. You can know all the facts. But if you are constantly distracted in life, that that word or that teaching or that understanding will not produce fruit in your life. Uh, There's a parable of the sower. Jesus goes out, talks about this sower who throws a bunch of seed, and he says one of the ways that good, fruitful growth is stunted is by the distractions of the world. So distraction could lead to unfruitfulness. You may be doing great in your understanding of God and who Jesus is. You may have all the right beliefs, but you have no fruit in your life because you're constantly distracted. And you've allowed distraction to totally cut out any ability for God's word to actually do something in your life. 
Number two, it can lead to lack of communion with God. And when we say communion, we say like enjoying the fellowship of God, actually praying with him. Here, as we gather together, we're actually communing with God. He is present here as we sing to him, as we um, teach about him, as we pray together. Uh, Scripture says that God, Jesus is here. He's present, and we are communing with him. Um, there's this great story in the Gospels where uh, Jesus comes to the house of Martha and Mary, and um, I forget which one was the, the distracted one, but one is so busy in the kitchen. What? It was Martha that was Okay, Martha is so busy. She's doing all these things. She's preparing. She's being hospitable for Jesus. But Mary is just sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him teach. And Martha comes, and she's like, Jesus, like, are you not appreciative of all that I'm doing? And, and Mar- Mary's doing nothing. And Jesus says something profound. He says that um, Mary understood that it was better for her to sit with Jesus, to be with Jesus, than to serve Jesus at that point. So we can busy our lives being distracted by even good things, but we'll, mess at, we'll miss out of the better things in life, like being with Jesus. So don't trade serving Jesus for being with Jesus. Don't trade distracting yourself, even with good things, with actually communing with God. Being with God is so, so important. We'll talk a little bit about that as we talk about prayer. Number three, distraction can lead to spiritual drowsiness. We are distracted, so we don't live with the level of urgency that we need to. A lot of us don't have the urgency of the gospel. Peter's, Peter, Peter's, Peter wants us to live... <laughs> That's a great, maybe possible baby name for our our next child. Um, Peter wants us to live as if the end is near. Peter (laughs) Peter has this understanding that the end is at hand or it's near. It's not far off, and so he's trying to adjust his his behavior and his disciplines. (laughs) Stop. Uh, His disciplines uh, so that the end is near. Okay? So it can lead to spiritual drowsiness. Number four, it can lead to shallow living. We become so caught up in being entertained and jumping just from task to task that we never deepen our lives. I've heard it said that our culture is like a mile wide and only like an inch deep. We like dabble in all these things, but we don't actually deepen our lives with things of significance. And that's because we're constantly distracted. We don't sit and actually pursue meaning and beauty and truth with intensive energy. And because of this, because we're so distracted by what is so new or hip or, you know, just shocking, we don't actually pursue deep things that can lead to deep living, not shallow living. A lot of us are shallow people because we're super distracted. So we we must recognize that the distraction is dangerous. And I would say most of us need to get serious, myself included, again and again. We need to recheck ourselves on being clear-minded, on being alert and sober-minded so that we can make room, especially for prayer in our lives. And there are some practical ways that we can do that, especially with your phone. There are some ways you can get rid of, 
a lot of the distractions on your phone. I've turned off all notifications on my phone except for messaging and email. I can't tell you how much that has cut out so many distractions in my life. If I want to know the score of something, I'll go find the score of something. I don't need to be prompted and then be sent on a rabbit trail to look through all the NBA scores from yesterday. Like, I don't. I don't need that distraction. I don't need to know when something's finished being built in Clash of Clans. I will probably go there at some point and find it, right? Or, or anything else. Like, I don't need an update from any app except messaging and email. I don't. So that's one way. To, or some, some of us need to give up the phone completely for a week, a day, something. Go on what we would call a digital fast or abstain from your device for a while. And uh, a good principle that we talked about in the social media and tech series a while ago was one hour a day, one week a year, and one day a week, fast from your phone. Unhook, unplug, just so you can devote yourself to being clear-minded, to being a person of prayer. But um, this season of Lent, if you're familiar with Lent, it's traditionally back in the church history. It's a time where people give up things, specifically food, but it's also been like generalized now to give up other things. Uh, to focus on Jesus in, in preparation for Easter. This may be a time for you to fast from digital technology or one social media platform. Um, W.R. Inge is a theologian. He says this, If we feel that any habit or pursuit that we have, harmless in itself, is keeping us from God and sinking us deeper in the things of earth or distraction, then abstinence, Fasting is one of the only courses of action. So if we sense, guys, if we sense that our phones are keeping us from praying, if our phones are keeping us from um, pursuing Jesus the way we ought to and the way we actually want to, then we need to take that seriously and enact necessary disciplines to remedy that situation. Challenge yourself and show that you're willing to starve that fleshly desire you have for entertainment and distraction and instead feed the spiritual exercise of, of fasting and prayer. So whatever it may be in your life, maybe it's not your phone, maybe it's something totally else, I don't know, uh, but consider how you can become more sober and alert, more clear-minded for the sake of prayer and actually replace that time of distraction with prayer. And uh, Peter says that's important if you're going to live in anticipation of the end of all things. Number two, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, sincerely, with hospitality. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly with hospitality. Peter lists a lot of commands in this passage, but it is this one. It is this command that he says should be kept above all. There's one command you can live. There's one that you can remember. It's this one. That's the command to keep loving one another well. We could do a whole series of sermons on what it looks like to love the other people in this room. We've talked about it many times. But I want to focus in on how Peter talks about what that looks like here in this passage. For one, 
It means that when Christians love others, that love covers the sins and offenses of others. There's this weird phrase. He says, love covers a multitude of sins. What he's saying there is that when you love another person, when you truly love them, you do not hold their wrongdoings against them. You are not holding their wrongdoings against them. You are covering up their sin, and you are loving them anyway. You're showing them grace. You treat them as a child of God who is in process just like you are. This does not mean that you do not confront people in their sin, if need be, but if they are a follower of Jesus, you keep loving them and not holding their wrongdoing against them because God does not hold their wrongdoing against them. So when you love others, you do not hold that wrongdoing against them, especially those people in Christ. So how are you doing loving others in this room? Just be honest. Are you loving other people well in this room? Just, just here, in the church. Are there people in here that you are holding their wrongdoing against them? Are you holding something that they said, something that they did, something that you heard that they said that maybe they didn't say against them? Are you holding that wrongdoing against them? So for one, make sure you confront that person. Matthew 18 tells us if a brother sins against you, a brother or sister sins against you, you go to them to have a conversation. If they don't listen to you, you bring another person in to that conversation. If they don't listen to that, you bring the whole church in. And then, they, and then what he says after that is if that doesn't work, you bring them in front of the church. He says you are to treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector. Tax collector. How were Gentiles and tax collectors treated? Good or bad? Bad, right? But how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Good, right? Because I used to interpret that, no joke, I used to interpret that passage before this week as, well, if they don't listen to the church, then you cast them off and you, you're, you can be done with them. That's not, that's not at all what, what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if that happens, then you start loving them as a Gentile, as a tax collector. And Jesus ate with tax collectors. Jesus invited the Gentiles into the family of God. He associated with them. He loved them and pointed them to himself. So there is never a time where you are not responsible to love other people, even when you've confronted them for their sin over and over and over again. Even when they have wronged you over and over and over again, Jesus and the gospel demands that we keep loving them. We keep loving them. We keep pointing them to Jesus. So even if you've confronted that person, and I would say most of us, that's not how we deal with conflict or people that's wronged us. We prefer to talk to other people first. I would just say that's wrong, guys, and that's not how conflict is going to be dealt with at all by talking to other people before you talk to that person. So confront that person, and whether they listen or not, you're still called to love them. Because listen, how can you be indifferent or hateful towards someone if you have been filled with the Spirit of Jesus who has radically and unconditionally loved you? Seriously. How can you hate someone? How can you be indifferent to another human being if you have been filled with the love of a Savior that has pursued you 
despite your screw-ups, despite your sin, despite your wrongdoing, if that love has been shown to you, then that love will flow out of you. That's how it works. If you've been shown that love in the gospel, you will have that gospel love flow out of you. If that is the experience you have in Jesus, that is the expression you will have of Jesus. That's all Peter's calling us to here, is to reflect Jesus in our love towards one another. So it, it looks over their wrongdoing. Secondly, it says, love looks like hospitality without grumbling. So hospitality is kind of a lost art form in our day and age. Um, but it is very, very important to the people living at that time. Do you guys know anybody that's, like, super hospitable? Like, when they come over, like, everything's, like, super clean and organized, and there's, like, three times the food you need, and there's, like, 18 rolls of toilet paper in the bathroom, right? <laughs> but, you know, it's, like, we have this picture of, like, super hospitable people, and um, it's kind of a lost art form today. But back in the first century Christian world, this was very, very important. Hospitality was so, so important. Time and time and again in the letters to Christians, they would emphasize how important hospitality was. Here's why. Hospitality was, was crucial for the Christian mission in a day when they could not afford to stay in hotels or lodge somewhere. And therefore, the very advance of the mission, the very life and vitality of the gospel moving forward depended on the willingness of believers to provide bed and board for those visiting. So the church depended on Christians being hospitable, opening up their home to be a place for people traveling through and advancing the gospel to stay there. Furthermore, furthermore many host homes or uh, home churches existed. The church gathered in homes. So hospitality was tied up in the church having a place to gather and to worship Jesus. So in this sense, right, love is not merely throwing nice dinner parties or hosting events at your house. That's not what he's saying is like be hospitable in that way. But more than that, what he's talking about is giving personal possessions and personal space for the sake of gospel advancement. He's got a big picture in mind here, Peter does. So, do you so love God and others that you're willing to share or give up those things that provide you personal comfort and security? Are you so committed to God and to other people and to the advance of the gospel that you will give up those things that are personally comfortable and give you a sense of security? That's what uh, Christians are called to do. For students, maybe this looks like giving up your time to come gather here on Sundays or Wednesdays so that you can encourage other people in the room. Maybe you're just giving up that comfort of a Sunday afternoon nap on daylight savings, or maybe it looks like going out of your way to pick up a student that doesn't have a ride. Maybe it looks like asking friends over to your house to soap together over the weekend. But Peter says love Love that overflows from an anticipation of Christ's victory looks like that. Giving up of yourself, your space, your time, your possessions to see other people advancing in the gospel. Thirdly, love looks like serving others, which leads to our next point. Serving others. Use your gifts, whether speaking or serving, to help others. 
Peter says in verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So the first thing to notice is that if you are a child of God, a follower of Jesus, you have been given a gift. You have a skill, a talent, a personality trait that is enlivened by the very Spirit of God. And many of us have different gifts. Peter says it's, it's God's varied grace. There's a variety of how God has gifted people in here. Some people are gifted one way. Other people are gifted another way. And it's that variety that actually gives the encouragement to everybody. It's um, what gives us kind of the symphony. We all are different instruments playing different parts, but they come together to bring beauty and unity and encouragement and strength to one another. And this is the beauty of the Christian church, which uh, Paul often talks about using the imagery of the body. This is a great passage. I'll just read. Um, now, there are a ver varieties of gifts, just like Peter said, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So there's going to be a variety of ways that you guys serve one another. It's not all going to look the same. It's not all going to look like you sitting one-on-one -on -one at a Starbucks talking about what you read over the Bible. That's not what it's all going to look like. It's going to look differently for some people. Maybe it looks like you writing letters or going serving somewhere or, or whatnot. There's just a variety of ways that God has given and gifted each of you. But to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So your gift's not about you. Your gift is about the common good that is available through you. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another is the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And he says, this is just as, for just as the body is one and has many members, like legs, arms, fingers, toes, mouths, eyes, not mouths, just one mouth. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So all I say to encourage you in this is, you have been given a gift, and the community here actually um, relies on your gift for the common good. Some of you are sitting idle with the gifts, skills, talents, and abilities God has given you, and we are all not getting to enjoy that gift. We are all not being built up because your gift is part of the body. In the same way like you need a leg or an arm or an ear or a mouth, um, all of the parts are supposed to be working together, and when one part doesn't work, the whole body suffers. So do you know your gifts? Do you know your talents? Um, we have a tool here. Um, 
just a spiritual gift survey that we've filled out before and helps you identify maybe those things that you're good at. You guys are, you know, still young, but you will grow into certain giftings as you go through life. But even right now, identifying what you're good at, what you're skilled at, would be important and beneficial as it pertains to serving the other people in this room. So part of being a follower of Jesus means that you are to serve others, especially your fellow brothers, sisters in Christ, and you are to primarily serve using your gifting. Uh, So we're going to give some time after just for you guys to pray together, that you would identify um, your gifting and find practical ways to serve others this week. But before we do that, I'm going to just wrap up this sermon with the last point, okay? Number four, the motivation in all you do, in every command that you obey, is to see God glorified through Jesus. So in your prayer life, in your contemplation and you being clear-minded, and you loving others and being hospitable, and you using your gifts, your talents, your skills to build one another up, it's not about you. Don't lose sight of the big picture because it would be easy to take all these commands, write them on post-it notes, plaster them all over your mirror or whatever, and get a detailed itinerary together to do them all and execute them all. But we still should not lose sight of the big picture that this isn't about us as much as it is about God and his glory. So the big picture is God has called you a child of his and he's committed to change you. So God has saved you to change you to be more like Jesus for his glory. And in part of doing that and changing you to be more like Jesus, he's going to use the other people in this room to encourage you in that, to love you well in that, to build you up, to to strengthen you in what you're good at and what you need checking on, right? So the big picture in all of that is that God builds up a people that is holy and set apart that are just like Jesus so that all things will be made new, so that he'll look glorious and great and beautiful. And so as you're engaging in that process, as you're engaging in uh, encouraging one another and serving one another and loving one another, you are bringing God glory. And listen, you will not love people well if you are only in it for your own benefit. You won't. Because it's easy to stop loving people as soon as it gets hard. As soon as you start to see a lack of benefit. But if you love God for the glory, or if you love others for the glory of God, then you're committed to it. So this is, that's the final question. Are you willing to love others for the sake of God's glory? You're not loving others because you simply want to do it. You were raised in the Bible Belt. That's what your mama said you should do. You are loving others because you are so committed to God getting his glory, to God unleashing his plan in the world, that you say, even though this is hard, even though it's confusing, I don't understand it, I'm going to keep loving them. And like I said, like Peter said, the most important command in all of this, the command that everything flows out of is to love others well. Above all, Peter says, is to love others well. So are we willing to do that? 
Not for our own selfish motivations, but for the glory of God. So I want to go back and just give you guys a time for you to pray together. And, and really, I, I want you to uh, pray that, that you would um, identify what you're good at, your gifting, your skill, your talent, um, and then find practical ways to serve others this week with that. That would be my prayer, that you would identify those things and then maybe encourage one another around the table um, to check in with one another throughout the week to do that. So go ahead and pray for a few minutes around the table.